Good to see all of you here tonight and uh, those watching online. Thank you for tuning in. If you haven't gotten an outline, I hope that you go ahead and grab one. They should be in the back as you were coming in. I don't think they put any over here, but there should be some in the back. Uh, if we don't have any back there, let us know. Maybe Rob could run and make some extra copies. I, because you've, I'm going to give you a lot to write down, okay? You're going to have a lot of material to cover tonight. And I want to make sure that you have something to, to write down some information on. Um, so I'm going to wait just a moment and make sure everybody's got the opportunity to, to have an outline. And there may be enough copies back there. I don't know that we need to copy, make copies, but all right, if you need one, raise your hand. Uh, a couple down front here, over here to my right. Tonight we're going to talk about how to summarize the Bible in 30 minutes. Uh, I think uh, I might do it in less than 30 minutes, but those are famous last words, aren't they? Uh, let's suppose that you, you had 30 minutes to explain the Bible to your kids or your grandkids. I want to try to make this personal. So let's just suppose that you had 30 minutes to, to try to explain the entire Bible to your kids or your grandkids. Could you tell the story of the Bible in a half hour? Now, the bigger challenge may be just getting them to sit down for a half hour. I, I understand that. But, but if, but miracle of all miracles, they sat down for a half hour, in that 30-minute window, could you explain to them the entire story of the Bible? That is a really big challenge if you think about it. Because, I mean, let's just think about this past Sunday. If you were in BSF class... Uh, you guys in your BSF classes probably talk 30 to 45 minutes on just a few verses of the Bible. Uh, there are some Sundays that I'll preach an entire 30-minute message on one verse of the Bible. So how in the world could we take a, a book like this and summarize it in 30 minutes? I mean, let's just think about the size of this book. Talk to me. How many, how many chapters are in this book we call the Bible? 66. There's 66 chapters, so how do you summarize 66 chapters in 30 minutes? Or to make it even more astounding, there are over 1,100, I'm sorry, 66 books. I was getting ahead of myself. I wonder why y'all sounded a little off. You weren't off, I was off. <laughs> 66 books in the Bible, uh, and there's over 1,100 chapters in the Bible. How do you summarize 1,100 chapters in 30 minutes? There, there are over 31,000 verses in the Bible. And over 800,000 words in the Bible. So how do you take all of that and summarize it in 30 minutes? Well, that's our goal. Buckle up. We're going to start out in the book of Genesis. We're going to end in the book of Revelation. And we're going to cover the entire Bible in the next 30 minutes. So let's go. I will say to you, uh, as you're writing these things down, the first a few things we talk about are going to be obvious. You say, man, I, I know this stuff, but it's going to be obvious, then it's going to get deeper, okay? So we're going to summarize the story of the Bible in six acts, six different scenes, if you will. Act number one would be certainly very obvious, but extremely important. Uh, that is, the first act of the Scripture is God creates everything. 
Put that on your notes. Act number one, God creates everything. And for each of these acts, I'm going to give you key verses or key texts. I'm also going to give you some key events, and I'm going to talk about some key people. And so, as best you can, I'll try to write down all of that. And I'll try to say, hey, here's a key text, here's some key people. And those are little clues, that's something you want to write down so that you can understand or or write down the entire story. So, act number one, God creates everything. And a key text for this, of course, is Genesis chapter 1 and 2. Those first two chapters of the Bible. And I'm going to ask you, as best you can, to have your Bible in one hand, your note sheet in the other, and we're going to read a few verses as we go. But the key text is Genesis chapter 1 and 2. And of course, the key event in this is that God creates the heavens and the earth in six days. And the Bible begins by saying... God made everything. And on the seventh day, God rested. And why is this important to the big story? Well, first of all, you need to know who the author of the story is. And God is not just the author of the Bible, but in Genesis chapter 1, God is the author of all of history. And so this is the starting point. So Genesis chapter 1, God creates everything. And and it ends this way in chapter 2, verses 1 through Three, it says this, Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had, uh, he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all of his work. And God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating, uh, of creating that he had done. So that's Genesis chapter 1, God creates everything. Then we come to chapter 2, and in Genesis chapter 2, we're introduced to some key people, if you want to write these down. Uh, they're mentioned in chapter 1, but they're really explained to us in chapter 2. And of course, the key people in Genesis chapter 2 are Adam and Eve. It's a dramatic story of how God, first of all, created Adam out of the dust of the ground. I've been studying recently, uh, as recently as this morning, I was studying about the, the concept of our soul. And it's a beautiful passage of Scripture where it says in Genesis chapter 2 how God created Adam out of the dust of the ground. And then it says, and God breathed into him the breath of life. And all of a sudden, the, the dust began to live. Our bodies are just created out of the dust of the ground. And so that dust, that body began to live once that body was filled with the breath of of life and, and man became a living being, the Bible says, or man became a living soul. You may hear more about that later. I've, I've been studying on that recently. But, but that's Genesis chapter 2. God creates Adam and Eve. Uh, he creates Adam out of the dust of the ground and he creates Eve in, in a different way, which is interesting, interesting to me. Why did, he, why did he do that? Why didn't he just create woman out of the dust of the ground like he created man? Because he created them to have a unique relationship so that. Eve was literally taken from the rib of Adam so that it was clear that the two would become one flesh. A unique relationship. Adam and Eve had a unique relationship that they never had with anybody else. Literally was created from the rib of Adam. And and those two, of course, became... uh, They formed the first family. And and the Bible ends in chapter 2 by something very interesting to me. The last verse of chapter 2 says, the man and his wife, not just the man and the woman, but this is a marriage. 
This is a family now that God has created. He not only created the heavens and the earth, He created the first husband and the first wife. He created the concept of marriage. He created the family. Alright? So, but notice how it ends. The man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. Now why in the world would the Bible be talking about that? Why is that significant? Here's, here's what I want you to write down. They lived in a perfect world that God created and they lived in perfect innocence. They lived in perfect innocence. They were both naked and they felt no shame because they lived in a perfect world created by God and they lived with perfect innocence. That will be important to remember that for the, the next act we're going to look at. So that's acts, or act number one. Then we go to act number two. Act number two is man rebels against God. God creates everything. Act number one. Act number two, man rebels against God. And the key text, if you want to write this down, for act number two is Genesis chapter three. You know the story of how Satan appears to Eve in the form of a certain serpent and de deceives her. She eats the fruit, of course, and gives it to Adam and he eats. Now, you know that story, but I want you to notice a few important details here. Uh, the Bible says that Eve ate because she was deceived by the serpent. Adam was not deceived as Eve was. Adam knew it was wrong, and he ate the fruit anyway. Therefore, God held him accountable. In fact, if you'll go real quickly to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, I want to show you a key verse, if you want to write this down in your notes as a key text. Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all men because all sinned. Sin entered the world through one man. Here's a key event. Write this down as a key event in your notes. This was the decisive moment, the great turning point. And nothing would ever be the same after this time. Nothing would ever be the same after this event. Sin entered the world that God created. And sin entered the world through one man and it's interesting when you read the text in Genesis 3, suddenly Adam and Eve are ashamed of their nakedness. They try to cover their nakedness. And here's the point I want you to get. Innocence is gone forever. Now they're ashamed. Innocence is now gone forever. Of course... When we are study Acts chapter, I'm sorry, Genesis chapter three, and God confronts Adam, Adam of course makes excuses. First he blames Eve, and then he blames God. Look in chapter three. Look at verse twelve. The man said, "The woman you put here with me, she gave me some of the fruit from the tree, and I ate it." <laughs> the woman you put here. You, you know, you, yeah, you can blame me, but, but you put her here. You're the one that brought her into my life. She gave me the fruit, and I ate it. And then, of course, Eve blames the serpent for, for 
the problem that she experienced. But here's the key event. Here's what I want you to see. This is where we're heading. The next key event is this. God judged sin. You know how God judged sin? And by the way, His judgment came quickly. God judged sin because Adam and Eve were cast out of the garden. Now, an interesting thing happens. Before He puts them out of the garden, He clothes them with garments. Uh, the animals of, uh, the, the, the uh, skin of animals. And it really was a demonstration. Watch this. His judgment that He puts them out of the garden but His grace that He clothed their nakedness. Remember those two words. We'll see them again in a moment. Judgment was immediate, but so was grace. Clothing their nakedness. Their innocence was lost, and He clothes them out of His grace. Now, in Genesis chapter 4 and 5, they are on their own. And the world becomes a very unfriendly place. In Genesis chapters 4 and 5, of course, this is the, the account of where uh, sin begins to spread. Kill, uh, Cain kills Abel. And the civilization begins to grow and expand, but so does sin. And death is everywhere. Write that down. Death is everywhere. Sin spreads. And death is everywhere. Things go from bad to worse to such a degree that we come to the next key event. Write that down in your notes. The next key event is the flood. And the key text, of course, is Genesis chapter 6. That God sends a flood to judge the sin of the world. Now, the key person or key people, of course, in this time period would be Noah. Noah who builds the ark, you know that story. And when the flood comes, only eight people are saved. And here... We see another example, watch these two words, we see another example of God's judgment, He judges sin, but God's grace, He provides the ark for Noah and his family. So all through the scripture, we see this combination of judgment and grace. Now, after the flood, the storyline narrows to the key people of Noah and his family. They are the only ones left. So after the flood, the three sons of Noah spread out. They begin to multiply. Generations come and go. Eventually, generations pass, and eventually they build the Tower of Babel, and God judges them again and spreads them out, confuses the language of the, of the, of the people, and they scatter across the face of the earth. That is act number two. Now, act number three, put a star beside act number three, because you're probably very familiar with act one and two. Act three is, is rather long because so, there are so many key events, so many key people, so many key texts that I want to make sure that we walk through this uh, rather slowly. So act number three is this, write this down. God initiates redemption. Act 3, God initiates redemption. The key text is Genesis chapter 12. Hugely important to the story of the Bible. Incredibly important to the overall story of the Bible. And the key person in this part of the text, or this part of the story, 
is, of course, Abraham. God calls Abraham. Genesis chapter 12, if you have a chance to open your Bibles there, Genesis chapter 12, uh, verses 1 and 2, the Lord had said to Abram, leave your country, your people, your father's household, go to the land I will show you. Abraham was living in the country of Ur, and God was going to lead him to go to the country that we now call Israel. And God says, and I will make you into a great what, church? I'll make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. And I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. Abraham, a middle-aged pagan man, living in the Ur of the Chaldees, God in His grace calls out to Abram, or Abraham, and he responds in faith to God's invitation. And he becomes the person through whom God is going to birth a nation. And that, that's exactly the word he uses in verse 2. I will make you into a great nation. This is hugely important to the entire story of the Bible. So the key event in this part of the act, the key event is this. God creates a new nation. Now, if you really wanted to do, to do it this way, you could say that from Genesis chapter 12, well, let me say it this way. From Genesis 1 to Genesis 11, all right, so you might want to write this down. From Genesis 1 to Genesis 11, God is creating the human race. Genesis 1 to Genesis 11, God's creating the human race. From Genesis 12 to Malachi 4, from Genesis 12 to the end of the Old Testament, God is creating the Hebrew race. So the first 11 chapters of the Bible, He's creating the human race. And in chapters 12 through the rest of the Old Testament, He's creating the Hebrew people or the Hebrew race. Who are the key people in this time? I told you it was Abraham, of course. But Abraham marries a woman named Sarah and they have a son named Isaac. You know about that. Isaac has a son whose name is Jacob. Jacob has many sons. And the most important of whom is Joseph. Joseph ends up uh, serving the Pharaoh in Egypt. And his family ends up living there. But there came the time when the Pharaoh no longer knew Joseph. And he and his family and generations after him experienced uh, bondage, if you will. 400 years the people suffered in bondage until God raised up another key person. So we've been talking about Abraham. The next key person in the biblical story is Moses. God raised up Moses to say, let my people go. That is to free them, to bring them out of bondage in Egypt. Pharaoh, of course, said no. God sends ten plagues. And the last one is the death of the firstborn. And eventually, Pharaoh allows Moses and all the Hebrew people to leave Egypt. And they go all the way across the Red Sea and into the desert. And that leads them to the next key event. This is so important in the biblical story. The next key event or the key place, they go to Mount Sinai. Write that down as a key event or a key place. They go to Mount Sinai. The entire, this new nation that is forming, this entire group of people, they go to Mount Sinai where they meet with God. 
And at Mount Sinai, God gives them the law, starting with the Ten Commandments. And the key text, we won't have the time to read it, but the key text is Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. The people of God eventually go to possess the promised land. And you know that initially when they try to go into the promised land, the spies go in first. And when they come back and give a report to the people of God, they get scared. And because their faith was lacking, uh, the Bible says that they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years until that generation died off. And then there was a new generation and a new leader. We had Moses, now a new leader, a new key person, if you will, in the story, rises to the, to the top of the story, and that key person, of course, is Joshua. Joshua leads the people to conquer the land of Canaan, the promised land, if you will, and they take possession of the promised land and they divide it up among the twelve tribes. I told you this is the longest section, so bear with me. We're going to continue to walk through the text together. Um, God, during this time, God had prophets that would speak to the people, uh, priests and judges that would lead the people. But the people insisted that they wanted a king. I'm fast forwarding through a lot of biblical history, but I'm trying to get to the key events. They insisted that they wanted a king once they were settled in the land. And the key people in this time period... We're still in Act 3, but the key people are in this time period. There's three of them. Write down their names. Saul, David, and Solomon. It's hard to overstate the importance of any of those three men. Saul, of course, was the first king. He started out well and ended very badly. Later, he was replaced by David. David's reign was a, was a good reign as Israel's king, but his reign was tarnished with his sin with Bathsheba. And then eventually, his son Solomon took over. And Solomon was the one who built the magnificent temple in Jerusalem. Solomon was used by God to build that temple. And then watch this. Solomon's heart was pulled away from the living God when he married foreign women in opposition to God's will. Key text for that is 1 Kings 11. We don't have the time to read it. But uh, 1 Kings 11. Now, why is that an important thing? Look up here for a second. Why is it an important thing that Solomon's heart was pulled away from the living God? That Solomon's heart was pulled away and he started following the, the gods of his wives. Why was that important? Because Solomon was supposed to be the spiritual leader of his nation. And he was leading them in the wrong direction. So guess what happens? After his death... Because of the way he had led God's people in the latter part of his life, at his death, the nation, the people of God, the nation split. Again, such a key event. The nation split into two parts. There were the ten northern tribes. The ten northern tribes, they were led by a long string of kings. Most of those kings were evil. And they were eventually taken into captivity in 722 B.C. That was the ten northern tribes. Then there's two southern tribes. By the way, the ten northern tribes was called Israel. The two southern tribes was called Judah. And the two southern tribes had a few good kings. Uh, but that didn't last. The, the kings became evil in the south as well. And eventually, in 586 B.C., another key date, 
586 B.C., the Babylonians took those people into captivity. This was the time that you read about when you read the prophets of the Old Testament. Prophets like Isaiah. uh, Prophets like Jeremiah who wept for his people. Prophets like Daniel who explained that the Most High God is sovereign over the kingdoms of men. And the people of God, this nation God was forming, now lived in exile for 70 years. 70 years. Now, we're almost to the end of Act 3. There were some two more key people that are important in this time period. And that is, one was named Zerubbabel. The other was Nehemiah. Zerubbabel led a small group of people back to Jerusalem at the end of the 70 years of captivity. He led a small group back to Jerusalem after the 70 years of captivity was over. And then in 445 B.C., Nehemiah went back to Jerusalem and led the people of God to rebuild the walls around the city of Jerusalem. Finally, the last person in this time period that I want to talk to you about was a man named Malachi. He was a prophet, the last book of the Old Testament. The name Malachi means my messenger. My messenger. He was God's final word in the Old Testament days. God's final messenger. And do you know what my messenger was saying? Do you know what God's messenger was saying to the people? The day of the Lord is coming. And that's how the Old Testament ends. With God's messenger declaring the day of the Lord is coming. So that's act number three. And and with those three acts, we are summarizing the entire Old Testament. Now, act number four. Act number four is God accomplishes redemption. Write that down. God accomplishes redemption. And of course now we are going into the New Testament. And I want you to go with me to the book of Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. And of course the key event uh, in all of this, would, or the first part of this, would be the incarnation. The incarnation, the birth of Jesus Christ, God becoming flesh. Uh, God's going to accomplish redemption, and the way He's going to accomplish it is the incarnation. It's best described in this key verse, uh, verse Matthew one twenty one. She will give birth to a son, and you're to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. In the, in a most unlikely way, in a most unlikely place, when the time had fully come, God sent His Son. Conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, this was not just a baby, this was the seed of David. This was Emmanuel. This was God with us. That's why the shepherds glorified Him. The angels announced His birth. The Magi came with gifts to worship Him. Call His name Jesus because He will save His people from their sins. He is the Lamb of God that will take away the sins of the world. And you see so many times throughout the Scriptures, the the Gospels, that He was full of grace and truth. And and that He was the fullness of God in bodily form. And He teaches, watch this, He teaches the law of God, but He embodies the law of God too. He embodies the love of God as well. There is this, this... combination of love and law that's within him. He preaches to the masses and he's a friend of sinners everywhere. And 
you just can't overstate the incarnation. Of course, the next key event would be the cross. We're still in Act 4. The next key event would be the cross. And here, the key text I want you to write down is Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. I want you to go with me if you have a chance to open your Bibles. Romans chapter 5, verse 6. Romans chapter 5, verse 6. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. At just the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Just, I'm sorry? Romans chapter 5, verse 6. At just the right time, while we were still powerless, unable to do anything to to improve our situation with God, Christ died for the ungodly. Verse 8. But God demonstrates His own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That brings us to the next key event in this act, which of course is the resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus Christ Uh, over 40 days He appeared and the message that rang clear throughout the city of Jerusalem and beyond is He's alive. He's alive. His message, God is glorified and He was alive and redemption has been accomplished. The resurrection, you you could go all over the Gospels and look at different places where He predicted His resurrection over and over and over and over again. He he told the disciples ahead of time that He'd be crucified, He'd be raised from the dead. And this was such a key event, the resurrection. And you go to Romans, and throughout the book of Romans, it talks about the importance of the resurrection to our salvation. So that's Act 4, and I'm trying to watch the time to make sure I I get through it all. So I'm going to move on to Act 5. Act 5 is this, God gives birth to the church. After Jesus came to uh, establish redemption, then number five, God gives birth to the church. And the key text here is the book of Acts, really the whole book of Acts, but specifically the key text is Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. On the day of Pentecost, you know the story perhaps, that the Holy Spirit came in great power. There was the sound of rushing wind. There was tongues like fire. The disciples began to speak in foreign languages that they had not studied. And the Spirit of God came to dwell within people. And Peter preaches and 3,000 people are saved in one day. And watch this. The church was born in Jerusalem. Suddenly, something something existed that had not existed before. The church. The people of God. The called out ones. And the message of the church, write this down, the message of the church began to spread across the Roman Empire. I'm going to give you two names to write down as key individuals, key people. Peter, Paul. The church, of course, faced all kinds of opposition and, and heresy, and there were all kinds of troubles at every turn. But Peter and Paul continued to take the gospel 
they, they broke the barriers, if you will. Peter and Paul continued to carry the gospel across the known world. Um, James was writing, Paul was writing, Peter was writing, John was writing. All of that was happening. And the New Testament was being written in the days of Peter and Paul. The New Testament was being written. Write this down. The New Testament was being written in the days that the church was, was, grow, was born and, and growing. The New Testament was being written during the days of the birth and the growth of the early church. Then we come to Acts, the, the, the last one, this Act number 6. I really like this one. I, I wanted to make sure we get to the last one and not rushed. Act 6 is this. God completes redemption. If you go all the way to the end of the New Testament, to the book of Revelation, you'll find pictured there the final act of history, which is the return of Jesus Christ to the earth. And the key text, write this down, the key text is Revelation 1.1. The revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave Him to show His servants what must soon take place. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave Him to show His servants what must soon take take place. Now when you read the story of Revelation, and you know this, but when you read the story of Revelation, you find out Jesus is coming back. As surely as He came the first time, Jesus is coming back a second time. He's coming again. Now, I know you've grown up with that, but would you let that sink into your mind for a moment? Would you pause for just a moment and think about this? Jesus is coming back. Jesus is coming again. It is an amazing, magnificent, unbelievable, thrilling thought. In fact, another key text, if you want to write this down, is Acts chapter 1, verse 11. Acts chapter 1, verse 11. This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you have seen Him go into heaven. This same Jesus will come back. Not somebody like Jesus, not a, a group that knows about Jesus. Jesus Himself is coming back. Jesus Himself is coming back to Powdersville. Jesus Himself is coming back to South Carolina. Jesus Himself is coming back to the United States. Jesus Himself is coming back to the world. Jesus is coming back to this world. And when He comes the second time, it will not be a Savior. It will be His judge. You might want to write that down. When He comes back the second time, it will not be a Savior. It will be His judge. He came the first time as the Lamb of God. He will come the second time as the Lion of the tribe of Judah. And when He appears the second time, Every knee will bow and every tongue confess that He's Christ. In fact, a key text I would ask you to write down and I'll read it to you. 1 Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 16 through 17. For the Lord Himself will come down from heaven with a loud command. The Lord Himself 
come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And after that, we who are still alive and are left will be called up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. The best is yet to come. Would you say amen to that? The best is yet to come. And maybe that's why the Bible ends the way it does. The Bible ends with these words. He who testifies to these things says, Yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. Amen. Revelation 22 verses 20 and 21. That was Revelation 22 verse 20 and 21. Now, why does all of this matter? I think I got it close to 30 minutes, but we're almost done. Why does all this matter? I want to make two final applications, and these are, these are very important, I, I think. Why does it matter that you're able to comprehend the big story of the Bible and maybe be able to explain it in 30 minutes? Why does that matter? The so what? So, okay, you told me the story of the Bible in 30 minutes. So what? I've got two applications for you. Here's the first one. When you're reading the Bible, I want you to understand these are not isolated stories. They are part of a bigger story or a bigger narrative. So when you're reading the story of, of uh, you know, uh, anything that you're reading there, uh, you're reading about Nehemiah rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. That's just not a story of rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. That's part of a bigger narrative. And, and the, the, the more you understand the bigger narrative, the better you'll understand the smaller story. So that's one of the reasons for the so what. But the second one is the one that I get excited about. Here's the reason I think that it's important to be able to know the big story of the Bible, the, the, the big narrative of the Bible. Listen to, let, let me set it up this way. I used to think, now hear me, I used to think, man, it would have been so cool to live in the days of the Bible. Man, if I could just live back in the days of the Bible, that would have been amazing. And then the Lord showed me, we are living in the days of the Bible. Because the Bible story is not complete yet. We're living in the days of the Bible. Because we're, we haven't gotten to Revelation yet. So we're still part of that narrative story. Why do we need to know the overall big story? Because you're part of the story. You're living in the story. I mean, I just, I got chill bumps on my arm just thinking about that. We're living in the days of the Bible and God's story is still unfolding. And He has told us how it's going to end. And you need to realize, don't just read your Bible. You're living in the days of the Bible. Because Jesus has not come back yet. You know that verse I read about 1 Thessalonians a moment ago? About His return? Hasn't happened yet. You're still living in the days of the Bible. But the better we know the overall narrative, the better we can understand the days in which we're living. Amen? Thank you so much. I appreciate you folks. Next week, uh, we're going to start a new series called I've Got a Question. Have you ever had some times where it's like, God, I'd really like to ask you a question. I've got a question. 
That will begin next Wednesday night. God bless you. Thank you for coming tonight.